Hi, welcome to the Infusion Nurses Society podcast. This is Michelle with the Infusion Nurse Society. Uh, joining us on episode 16, September 27th, is Britt Meyer, and she's going to be presenting a session for us at our Fall Academy um, entitled Salvage, Exchange, or Remove, Exploring Choices for the Treatment of CRBSI. Britt, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. I'm really excited to, to talk about um, CLABC and CREBC and, and to give some information to our attendees about the differences between those things and better inform them so that they can go back and provide best practices in their organizations. Oh, that's wonderful, and it's exactly what we're looking for is any information we can find that will lead us to those best practices. And uh, I feel that you're probably one of those great people for that. You've been involved in infusion nursing for quite some time, past president of the Infusion Nurses Society. What else have you been up to? So, you know, my recently my biggest endeavor has been working on a Ph.D. Um, I, I really wanted to go back to school and learn everything I could to help nurses at the bedside to be able to participate mm -hmm. in quality improvement and in research. Nurses very often have great research ideas, but they're not really sure how to go about bringing those things to pass. And so uh, in May, I just finished up my PhD work, and um, I work here at Duke University Hospital. I manage the vascular access team here. Um, I also chair our Health System Council on Vascular Access and pretty much oversee policies and procedures related to anything that has to do with infusion or vascular access um, in our specialty. And I, I learn something new every day. Oh, I'm sure. There is always something new to learn. And congratulations on the degree. That is really exciting for not only for yourself, but I think for the the world of infusion nurses, too. It shows that we definitely can make an impact on how our patients and our bedside um, treatments go and improve our practices. So um, why don't we go ahead and get started a little bit then with, um, I guess my first question is, why do we do this? Why do we have to decide whether we're going to keep a catheter in? Can we leave it? Do we need to exchange it? Should we remove it? It's all based on catheter-related bloodstream infections, correct? Yeah, that's actually a fabulous question. I think, um, you know, what we've seen over the last 10 years is that the patients that we see in the acute care setting have so many more comorbidities. Mm -hmm. We are keeping people alive longer. We have all of these fabulous technologies. But as we do that, we find that their vessels are exhausted mm -hmm. um, a lot quicker than they used to be. And so it may be that you have a patient that develops a line infection, but you really don't have anywhere else to put a new line. Right. And it used to be that we would just pull those lines out no matter what, you know, and replace them. But there comes a point in time when you have patients that have recurrent line infections where there really is no um, good new place to place mm -hmm. the lines. They have to look at some other alternatives. And our other alternatives then, um, we have like three choices. Well, of course, the one is to remove the catheter completely. And back in the day, that's like you said, we would remove that catheter and find another place for it. Um, but since then, there's been a couple of different things that have come along. Um, catheter exchange, when I was looking for some information on that, I really couldn't find anything that said, you know, this has been done for how many years? You know, like when was the first catheter exchange done? Who did it? Who does it? That kind of thing. There isn't a lot of information out there. There really isn't. You know, I think this is one of the things that in clinical practice, 
physicians particularly have exchanged catheters over guide wires when there really were not good other avenues for placing lines. But I think we've done that a bit indiscriminately. Mm -hmm. Um, And there may be other options for lines, especially now that we have our vascular access professionals, you know, in the the nursing field are so great at Mm -hmm. what they do that very often we can get a line in a patient that years ago they couldn't get a line in those patients. So I think there's been some indiscriminate use of catheter exchanges. And what we know now is that within about 24 hours of placing any vascular access device, you have this stuff called biofilm that Mm -hmm. starts to form in the catheter. This biofilm, if we don't scrub a hub correctly, we introduce bacteria into this biofilm And the bacteria then begin to grow there and encapsulate themselves over a period of time. And if we break that tensile strength of that biofilm and push it off into the bloodstream, that's when your catheter-related bloodstream infection actually Mm -hmm. happens. So in order to exchange a catheter over a guide wire, you have to trim the catheter and stick a wire in it, and you run the risk that you're going to knock that biofilm that may be formed there off into the bloodstream. Mm. So I think, you know, at least in our organization, we don't exchange catheters over guide wires if the catheter's been in longer than 24 hours unless there's some real dire need for it. Okay, so um, catheter exchange probably is not the best way to go. As you said, we can um, actually make a bloodstream infection worse by chance of, of inserting that guide wire and knocking that biofilm loose. That's very interesting. So if we can't exchange it, or if that's really not the best option for the patient, and and they really have nothing else left that we could remove it and put another device in somewhere else, what is our other option? Well, then you start thinking about salvaging your catheter. And what I mean by salvage is that I want to be able to use that catheter for as long as this patient necessarily needs infusion therapy. Mm -hmm. So the very first thing I'm going to do is try to decide whether or not they really need this catheter. Is there another way to give the medications that they're getting? Mm -hmm. Because if we know that the catheter itself is infected and the patient does indeed have a bloodstream infection as a result of that, then catheter salvage is going to be your last resort. And it's also going to... um, you're, you're going to make sure that there is no other way to do what it is that you need to do. Mm-hmm. And then there are a couple of ways to salvage catheters. So you can instill ethanol locks into the catheters themselves, and really that's just 70% alcohol. The alcohol then kills any bacteria on contact, and we allow that ethanol to dwell in the catheter for a period of time from two hours up to 12 hours. Okay. Um, in between um, patients getting their infusion therapy. And then that helps to keep the internal lumen of that catheter clean. Okay. Now, what you can't do in with when you're trying to salvage a catheter with an ethanol lock, you really can't do anything about the extraluminal surface of that catheter or the outside mm. of that catheter. Um, one other way that we can try to salvage catheters is with either an antibiotic lock or an antifungal lock, depending on what the organism is that's causing the infection. Um, and, you know, there are risks that are associated with that. Anytime that you use antibiotics or antifungals for long periods of time, there's always the risk that you're going to develop some resistance mm-hmm. to, that, um, to that antimicrobial. Um, so we really have to to pay really close attention to whether or not we need to salvage a catheter, and then we only need to 
to use these locks as long as that catheter is necessary. Okay. Mm -hmm. So really, every single day, we're taking a look at seeing whether or not that patient still needs that therapy and whether or not we can get that line out. Excellent. Um, when you uh, instill the ethanol, the alcohol, um, is it based on the – how much do you use? It's based on the internal diameter of the catheter and the yes, add-on be, set? It's going to be based on your fill volume. And actually okay. you're, not, you're, you're going to disconnect your, your catheter from any add-on devices, right? Okay. So you're going, to, you're going to cap it off so that you have the smallest fill volume possible. You're going to pull back until you get a blood return in that catheter to determine what your fill volume is going to be. Okay. And then I'm just going to lock that catheter with exactly the amount of ethanol or antibiotic or antifungal, right, to fill that to fill that catheter. Okay. Okay. And then the dwell time, nothing else goes into the catheter at that point. It's not touched for any other reason. And you okay. let it dwell for whatever amount of time. And then when that dwell time is up, you remove that, I would assume, before you would actually flush. Yes. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, here at Duke, we remove the ethanol before we would give a new, we would restart our infusion therapy. But mm -hmm. there are some home care agencies that actually teach their patients to flush that ethanol lock mm. through. Okay. Um, it's, it's a really, really small dose of ethanol, and mm -hmm. most people don't have any reaction to it whatsoever. But there are some things that you need to take into consideration um, you know, there are folks that have religious convictions against um, drinking alcohol, and mm -hmm. they might really have some prohibitions against using an ethanol lock at all and certainly with flushing it through. Interesting. And it really depends on the setting for your administration, too, where they're going to be giving it and how easy it is to withdraw that, um, that ethanol. And certainly that's going to be easy for a nurse in an acute care setting to accomplish but it might be a little more cumbersome for patients and families to do that at home. Quite interesting, yeah. Um, is there anything, any risk factors involved? Do we, do we have to be more careful with some patients than others when it comes to the catheter salvage? So I think you do. You know, one of the things that you have to take into consideration with an ethanol lock is the type of catheter that you have. Okay, yep. Ethanol will, um, it essentially melts polyurethane. Mm. Sometimes it can take a long time for that to happen. We don't really know in each individual patient how, off, how long it would take for that to happen. So we try not to put ethanol um, in polyurethane catheters. Um, okay. Having said that, I do believe that there are a couple of com companies who have taken a polyurethane type material to the FDA for approval for ethanol locks. So I think that's something new that may be coming down the road. There's a uh, lot new coming down, it seems yeah. like, all the time, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, the, if, if a patient's got a polyurethane catheter, we certainly would try to avoid that ethanol lock. If we had a patient that had any allergies to the antibiotics or antifungals that we were planning to use, then that would be a contraindication as well. Mm -hmm. um, you use really high doses of the antibiotics and the antifungals, as much as 100 times the normal oh. infusion dose to lock the catheter. Okay. Um, and then usually those antibiotics are going to need to sit in that catheter for 24 to 48 hours. So, again, you've got to take into consideration whether or not you need to be using, for that, using that catheter for something in the meantime, and can we afford to let those antibiotics or those antifungals um, dwell as long as they need to to do their work. 
That's that's a really interesting point too, um, because if you're you're tying up this catheter, it's the only thing that you have. What do you do in the meantime? I mean, do you start a peripheral IV to keep going with the therapies that are ordered, or can these therapies be interrupted for that period of time? I suppose that's one of the the little risk versus benefit things you have to kind of weigh out to decide if this is the right thing to do. Absolutely. I think probably we see ethanol locks used here at Duke mostly for our long-term TPN patients, Mm -hmm. you know, those patients that have had recurrent line infections where, you know, our line now is just, the, it, we're, it's on its last leg. We know that um, this patient is at risk for developing another infection, and we'd really like to prevent the line we have from becoming infected. And that's when we would use ethanol loss, and we really probably would not use that catheter for anything other than the TPN infusion. We would try to come up with another way, a peripheral IV or some other access point um, if they needed another um another way of giving their medication. Okay, so not only a salvage thing, but it's also like a, a prophylactic treatment or a preventative type of way or hoping that we can prevent another infection from settling in that catheter. Yeah, and, and like I said, this is those patients that have had recurrent line infections and we have gotten a new line in by some miraculous way we've gotten a new line in and we want to do everything we can to make sure that that line is is not going to become infected in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, And the ethanol locks are a pretty good mechanism for for helping to do that. That's Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, And we were discussing a little bit earlier about the Infectious Diseases Society of America. That's where we get a lot of our our guidelines. I guess they actually have practice guidelines that, that lead us in the direction that we need to go in dealing with these issues. They do. Um, the, the guidelines that they set out in 2009 are actually very, very nicely evidence-based. It takes providers through how to decide whether or not to salvage a catheter, and then if you do salvage that catheter, how are you going to treat that patient? Because very often they're not only going to just need their lock therapy, but they're going to need systemic antibiotics mm-hmm. at the same time. And so those guidelines really lay those things out for us and give us lots of things to think about as we make that um, make that determination. And I think you had mentioned to me earlier that those guidelines are actually in revision and are, are due to be updated again next year. Right. I think it's going to be like the fall of 2017 that they're looking at um, releasing the updated guidelines. Uh, and in the meantime, it isn't like they just sit stagnant and nobody looks at anything. If, if I understood correctly, they do you know, uh, keep current as they can with uh, up-to-date type of revisions and stuff as, as things go along, correct? Correct. They have, um, they have physicians that work in their offices that author and edit these guidelines and provide what they call up-to-date revisions so that providers can go in and, and take a look and see if things have changed mm-hmm. since the guidelines were, were put into force. That, that's good to know because then you know you're at least getting the most current information possible without having to have the whole thing redone. That takes forever to do those things. So yeah, it's a good thing. So um, I, I guess the real important thing here for um, nurses to know, the infusion nurse or you know the patient's nurse, is that this is definitely a collaborative effort in order to work with this CRBSI that we have and and to see if we can get the catheter to leave it or if we have to take it out. It's, it's just not one person making the decision. 
Yes, that's, that's so true. And if you take a look at the guidelines, they actually kind of walk you through which organisms um, can be, where which organisms growing in which catheters can then be salvaged. There mm. are some organisms that you would never want to salvage that catheter. And so that's one of the nice things about the guidelines and one of the things we'll talk about in my presentation or which organisms can you can you salvage a catheter with? Um, and that really needs to be a collaborative discussion, not only with the provider, but also with your infectious disease department, um, if, if that's available to the infusion nurse. But we really do need to know about these things so that we can offer information and guidance to providers who may not know as much about this as we do. Um, so it really should be a collaborative effort. I think the other thing that's really important that most infusion nurses don't know is the difference between what we term a CLABSI and what we term a CREBSI or a catheter-related bloodstream infection. Exactly. We, um, the CDC has, has NHSN guidelines to diagnose CLABSI, and when we say CLABSI, we're talking about a central line-associated bloodstream infection. That doesn't necessarily mean that your central line is the source of the infection. It just means that your patient has a bloodstream infection and there's no other source for the infection and they did have a central line in place at the same time that the, that the bloodstream infection was diagnosed. Okay. So it's really likely that we overestimate central line infections when we do this, but the term CLABSI is really used for surveillance. It's not um, used for research. If okay. we were actually researching and creating new evidence for things, we would use the CREBSI diagnosis or the catheter-related bloodstream infection. Okay. And that's really specific for your catheter being the source of a bloodstream infection. We would use semi-quantitative or quantitative cultures of the catheter itself, right? And we would show that you have the same organism in your... Um, catheter segment that you also have in your peripheral blood. Okay. And so you, we, excuse me. You'd be taking a sample directly from the catheter and also taking a, a blood culture from the periphery. Correct. Okay. And so if, you're, if your blood culture from the catheter had a higher concentration of organisms, right, mm -hmm. than the peripheral blood, then you can reasonably be assured that the source of that bloodstream infection is coming from your catheter. Correct. We also use something called time to positivity. So if you had a catheter where you, um, you took a blood culture from the catheter itself and then you also took a peripheral blood culture and the catheter culture became positive quicker than the peripheral mm -hmm. blood culture, then we could reasonably assume that our catheter was the source of our infection as well. So if you say that it, a patient has a catheter-related bloodstream infection, it means that you have specifically looked at organisms from both places and determined that indeed your catheter is the, um, is the source of your infection. And again, these are things that we really would, um, we would use that definition when we were doing research and not mm -hmm. our CLABSI definition. CLABSI really just helps us to understand how prevalent um, infections are when patients have central lines in place, okay. not necessarily not necessary that the central line itself is the absolute source of the infection. That is just a tad bit confusing. but <laughs> it, it is quite a bit confusing. But you can see that you would have to spend an awful lot more time c 
collecting data, right, and costs mm-hmm. from patients in order to determine if your patient really had a Krebsy, as opposed to saying, you know, we looked over the last month and we determined that based on the number of catheter days that we have, this many patients also had infections, we probably need to do something to improve our performance. Okay. That does does make sense. It definitely does. So we are definitely looking forward to this presentation. I, 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 there's more information, more questions I have now that we get into this. So it's going to be a really informative and interesting presentation that you'll be giving us in November, just coming up not too far away in Cincinnati. Um, Britt, I want to thank you so much for joining us on this podcast today. And I look so forward to attending your presentation and meeting up with you in Cincinnati. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure, Michelle. Thank you.